Good morning. The Lord be with you. Would you pray with me, please? Good morning, Father in heaven. We thank you for this beautiful first of November morning and for your grace that meets us as we get up, start our day, and look forward to receiving more of your love, more of your mercy, more of your goodness. I pray that each person uh, watching right now, each person with us in spirit, will know the comfort of your presence, the blessings of the friendship we have with Jesus, and the confidence that we have in your word that you will see us through. Life is so unpredictable for us, God. We think that we're going to have one of two people elected this week to the presidency, but we're not even certain of that. But we do pray that we would have this assurance in our hearts that however things go, that you're going to work in it and with it that you're going to make a space in our lives, in our nation, for us to meet with you. And whatever happens, we're going to have to trust you. We're going to have to have the assurance that you're near at all times and that you care and that you are with us and taking care of us. We praise you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would help us to find rest and peace in you, that our hearts and our souls would be comforted in you, and that you would sustain us. Now be with all those who are ill, who have received unpleasant news from a doctor, all those who have hardships right now, especially uh, financial hardships, caring for themselves or a family and show us that there is a way through this, and it's always in trusting you. We pray that we would come alive to your word to us today in the scriptures, and thank you, God, for your holy word. We count on it. We count on your faithfulness to your word, and we would like to return that faithfulness to you in the way we live and order our lives. All these things we bring before you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one God eternal in heaven. Amen. Well, we are finally to the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. Isn't that something? Chapter 13. Um, and it begins, let brotherly love continue. I remember reading that growing up. And, uh, and every once in a while, my dad, in breaking up a fight between my brother and I, would say, the Bible says, let brotherly love continue. And I would say, well, dad, it has to start before it can continue. And yes, I did some scripture twisting in my youth, but I'm over that now. I lost a few years of my life attending conferences and seminars and symposiums and forums. 
And what I took away from each one of those conferences was a notebook. And those notebooks, many of them, sat on shelves collecting dust. You know, I had every intention of going back and going through everything that I had learned in those seminars, which wasn't a great deal to begin with. Um, and only rarely did I actually pick up one of those notebooks and reread either what a speaker had said or my notes that I had taken. Well, here we are after taking in the first 12 chapters of Hebrews. We have all this information and we need a way to clarify how to turn these ideas into actions. There's so much here that we're left with to, to still do. And, uh, and that's what the writer does for us in chapter 13. He revisits themes from earlier in the book and then provides simple instructions how to put those themes into practice. Luke Johnson observed, Virtually everything said here echoes earlier passages in which the author praises what his hearers are doing or exhorts them to do. Indeed, the several references to memory in this section suggest that the hearers are already well aware of their obligations. Back in chapter 12, from verse 18 to verse 25, the the writer speaks to his audience using the, the second person plural, you, you this, you that. Then in chapter 25, mid verse, he shifts to we, and it's we, um, what is that? First person plural, through the rest of the chapter. What this implies, whether he's speaking to you, the audience, or we, himself and the audience, what this implies is a collective group, a community. You know, I have really been missing our reflection community, our face-to-face -face meetings, uh, shaking hands, hugging, sharing personal stories and details with each other. Yes, we can do this on social media, but it certainly isn't the same. I, in fact, I'm amazed in our Lexio Divina meetings on Wednesday nights, how much we can connect through the Zoom application. But still, it is not the same. So here is this community, and communities are built on relationships. I realize I don't have to say that because obviously, people in community have to be together and relate to one another. As a matter of fact, when I visited those conferences, what I did take away from them more than the content was the friendships that I made there. Uh, friendships that persist to this day, friendships with people on the other side of the nation. And those are very meaningful to me. Uh, it's that spiritual community of the conference that I that I got the most uh, encouragement and insight from, rather than the conference itself. So the theme of 
chapter 13 overall is our relationship with others because this is the essence of of hebrews is knowing jesus and in jesus being connected to him connected to the father and connected to each other and what we got in chapter 13 this might be strained a little bit but we get do-it-yourself instructions for community building. Uh, Craig Coster said, by calling for compassion, hospitality, faithfulness, and generosity, the author of Hebrews emphasizes community building values that listeners would find hard to reject. So verse one, relating to others in community. The, the nearest and dearest, let brotherly love continue. Early in my ministry, I read a book that had a powerful influence on me that persists to this day. It was written by a very warm-hearted pastor by the name of Bruce Larson. And at the time, he was the senior pastor of the University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. A wonderful man. Um, I was able to hear him in, in person on one occasion, and he was very, um, oh, very receptive, very warm towards us that he was uh, speaking to. The book he wrote was entitled No Longer Strangers, and he takes the title from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, where he talks about how us Gentiles were locked out of all that God had promised to Israel and that his people had in, in God and together. But then he talks about how Jesus, through his death, broke down that wall between Jews and Gentiles so that we could be admitted into the community and, and the house of Israel. And so we are no longer strangers from the household of God, but we belong. And, and I love that word belong. We belong to each other. We belong to God. Jesus belongs to us. This, this belonging is, is not pride of ownership, but joy of fellowship and relationship. Bruce Larson, in his book, No Longer Strangers, said, I do not believe that the preaching of doctrine, no matter how sound or how stimulating intellectually, does much in itself to enable relationships. It merely describes life without enabling life. Very simply, God became flesh in the incarnation and lived among us in Jesus Christ and died and was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ came to enable relationships that bring people closer to one another and closer to God. Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love translates the Greek word Philadelphia. Now, if you know Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at all, you know that it is called the city of brotherly love. I'm not so sure that that name still applies, 
but that's what Philadelphia, the Greek word, means. Uh, it's made up, uh, it's a compound of two words, uh, philia, love, and Adelphia, or Delphia is um, brothers and sisters. It includes both genders. <clears throat> In scripture, love speaks more of doing than of feeling. So sometimes a writer will add the feeling part to love, uh, which is the doing part. For example, in Romans 12.10, Paul said, love one another with brotherly affection. And the affection there is more than the doing of love. It is a cherishing uh, of true caring for another. I do not believe that the doing and feeling of love can be separated from each other. Um, I think any separation is artificial. Uh, if we love, we're going to do. And if we do what's right, love is behind it somehow. It's, it's one movement of cause and effect, loving leading to doing. For God so loved that he gave. God loved, he felt, and he gave, he did. The, the feeling and the doing. The doing half is emphasized here. And if we are doing love, what does that look like? First of all, it looks a lot like listening to the other person. This is how I get to know another as a person by listening, listening to the story of his or her life. Everyone has a story, and if you can draw it out, every story is interesting. Every story pulls you in, pulls you in and gives you perspective, seeing the world through their eyes or seeing their world through their eyes. Doing involves giving. Love gives. God so loved so, um, that he gave. And it means giving whatever we have. God never expects us to give what we don't have. There have been times when someone has asked me for counseling and after they've told their story, I realize I have no wisdom for this person. I do not know how to direct them. I'm not trained for this. This is above my pay grade. But I can pray for them. That's what I have. If I don't have wisdom, I always have prayer. What do we have that we can share with others? Perhaps time. That's important. Food, can't live without it. Wisdom, if you have it. Um, think about your resources and something that you have enough of that you could give to others that's going to be a benefit to them. Peter tells us, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
I think he means my love for you will cover your sins, that I won't make them an issue. I won't let your sins keep me from loving you, from being with you. And your love for me covers my sins. You won't let my sins be an issue between us. Our sins are an issue between each individual and God. And people who make the sins of others their business um, do not develop healthy relationships. He says, Peter goes on, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> we can be hospitable and complaining the whole way, kind of like Martha uh, toward her sister Mary. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then Peter goes on to talk about the types of gifts we have, speaking and doing and so on. So the, the acts of love, the doing of love is uh, listening, giving. Of course, listening can be a gift. And then forgiving. Because every relationship cycles through periods of rupture and repair. Every relationship, especially the closest, the most enduring, the ones when we spend the most time with someone else. There's a moment of rupture and it can feel like it's over, but then comes the repair. And the repair can be a difficult process, but it's always rewarding on the other side. Now I have to say that there are people around who because of their disordered thinking, because of their own internal distress, work against Christian unity and love. And they disrupt communities rather than build communities. Some of them are knowledgeable and that knowledge puffs up their ego and they leave love that edifies others. This is what Paul says, is that, is that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. William Barclay pointed out a particular type of, of person who causes problems in church communities. He talks about the danger of heresy hunting. Oh, there's so much of that today. I think since the publication of Dave Hunt's book, uh, The Seduction of Christianity, it just spawned a bunch of amateur apologists who think that it's their job to define orthodox theology. And so few of them have what it takes, have the educational background to do that, or have the sophistication of thought that can understand complex issues. Uh, most of them are very black and white. Uh, anyway, back to Barclay. William Barclay says, the very desire to preserve the faith clean and pure tends to make men eager to track down and to eliminate the heretic and the man whose faith has gone astray. It is a great thing to keep the faith clean. But when the desire to do so makes us censorious, critical, fault-finding, condemning, harsh, and unsympathetic, brotherly love is destroyed and we are left with a situation which is worse than the situation which we tried to avoid. 
I have found myself disappointed with St. Augustine, probably for more than one reason, but for one particular reason, is the way that he went after Pelagius. Now, Pelagius had some ideas that were off the mark regarding Orthodox theology, and that's for sure. However, Pelagius saw the human person in God's image and likeness and, and saw something there that I think is true, and I think to ignore it is to be foolish. Um, I know of people who do not profess any kind of relationship with God through Jesus, and yet the lives that they live, that the choices they make, are definitely good and even better than the lives of many Christians. And Pelagius understood that, I think, in a way that that scripture teaches, and we need to understand it. But that really bothered Augustine, and from Augustine to John Calvin, and to a lot of people today who think that being a good person is good for nothing, uh, which is not true, and definitely not what Paul has to say in Romans chapters 2 and 3. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fault finders? How do we deal with the people who are trying to, I mean, working hard at seeing where others are going wrong and criticizing them, uh, even making horrible attacks on them? People who we perhaps know from their reputation in the Christian world as being devoted to God and having strong ministries, having affected other lives and brought people into the faith. Of course, there are those people who question even that, uh, whether anyone who's converted at uh, a Christian crusade is actually a true Christian. How do we deal with these, these critical, high-conflict people? In Romans 16, Paul gives us, I would say, the introductory way to deal with them. Perhaps as we mature in Christ, we'll find other ways to love these people and be able to have some kind of communication with them. But at first, and if we're unsure, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They're serving their own ego, perhaps. They're serving some deep need they have. They're serving to relieve some distress of their own by being distressed about others or, or throwing distress on others. He says, avoid them. Just keep your distance. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We, we go now from relating to um, others in the community to relating to people who are outside our community. The instruction is given in its negative form. Um, do not neglect. 
Now, if Philadelphia was love for brother and sister, hospitality here is philozenia. And um, you might be aware of the Greek word xenia in the term xenophobia. Xenophobia is an English word. It's a fear of strangers. Phobia, fear, xenia, stranger. But here, the again, the word phileo or philia is love. Hospitality is love for strangers. It's assumed that we show hospitality to each other. And there are other passages that tell us to do that. Here, it's towards the stranger. The stranger always looks strange to us. And that's because they're different from us. When I first began to travel, when I was in a foreign country, I would be baffled by their culture, uh, by their food, by driving on the wrong side of the road and all that sort of thing. And um, I would say, boy, they sure do things different around here. And indeed they do. That has come to be for me, the beauty of the rainbow, the, the differences and appreciating the richness of other cultures, the texture of other cultures and how people relate within those other cultures. Many of them being much more family oriented than we could ever imagine. Most of us who have our dinners in front of the television set. Hospitality can be the first step we take in making new friends, you know, by opening our home. One evening, there was a knock at our front door. Now, I have no idea how this man found his way to our house. Um, not necessarily an easy house to get to. I don't know if he knocked on other doors be before he came to ours, but he was an older African-American. And as we asked him what he wanted, it was obvious that he was not thinking clearly that he had escaped from somewhere. Uh, so um, we, uh, Barbara and I brought him in and began to talk to him and ask him questions. And uh, I asked him if he had identification and he did. And we found his name and uh, an address in Oceanside. So we began to make calls uh, Barbara also called uh, the sheriff to see if they could come and help this guy uh, find out where he's supposed to be. But we found his family in Oceanside, and they were so relieved to hear that he was in our home and that he was safe. Um, and they, they said that he had dementia and he had wandered away. How he got from Oceanside to Dana Point, I do not know. It was rather miraculous, perhaps. But it was a blessing for us to be able to encourage his family and to watch over him until they came and picked him up. 
I, I wouldn't say he became a friend, but there was a moment of connection with him and his family that was friendly. It, it was right. Hospitality. Have you ever thought about the fact that we never find Jesus eating alone? And Jesus sat down and ate by himself, or Jesus went off by himself to eat. Never. He would pray alone. We're told that. There are some things he did alone, but in the Gospels, he never eats alone. He's always, every time we see him eating, he's eating with others. And each meal for Jesus is an opportunity to teach, to reveal, to open eyes, to appeal to the hearts of people on behalf of his Father in heaven. Most often in the Gospels, Jesus is the guest, and he would eat with anyone who would invite him to the table. He ate with... Um, Pharisees, very religious. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, very unreligious. He attended a wedding reception. He was always ready to show up when invited. And he was there, like at the wedding reception, to work miracles, to do good, to, to be the presence of God to them. Even after his resurrection, Jesus broke bread with two disciples in Emmaus. He ate a fish with his disciples in the upper room. Now, more than once, Jesus was not the guest. He was the host. He provided food for thousands uh, with just a small portion of loaves and fish. In the Last Supper, he was the host. He says, I've desired to have this this meal with you, he tells his disciples. After his resurrection, he makes breakfast for his disciples in Galilee as they've fished all night and caught nothing. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the lamb, the, the lamb. So even into the next life, hospitality is a theme. God's great hospitality, opening his realm for everyone who wants him. This other part of the verse um, about entertaining angels unawares, I've always found this enchanting to think of the possibility of, of hosting an angel in disguise. To think that I'm just connecting with another human person because it looks like a human person, but actually is this being from the spirit dimension. But I, I, I just love that idea. You know, some of you have been like angels to me. You've just been there at the right time. You've said the right thing. You've texted the right message. And, and I, I love you and appreciate you for that. 
And, and I hope that we can be angels to each other. But with a stranger, remember the possibility that it might be like when Abraham and Sarah saw those three men arrive who turned out to be angels in the next chapter, that, that there are times when we think we're talking to just another person, but there, there may be something more there. I think that some of you have experienced that perhaps, or you have stories about that. You know, uh, not all of us can open our homes to others, but there are other ways to show hospitality. I think that we underestimate the relational power of a smile. Have you ever thought about that? That you looked at another person and they greeted you or responded to, to you with a smile? Nothing more. No words exchanged, just a smile. Or perhaps you saw a child doing something amusing and you smiled and you looked at another person nearby also watching the child. And that person looked at you and they smiled and you're sharing this smile together. It's powerful. It is affirming. It is feeling like you've been noticed and that you matter. And, and think how many smiles you can give away every day if we discipline ourselves to smile when we look at others. That's our first greeting before a hello, before a handshake or elbow or fist, um, whatever they call that, uh, fist greeting, the smile goes before any other interaction. It seems to me that Christians who know that their home is a gift of God tend to be more open in sharing their home. In other words, God gave us this home, not just for our own residence, but so that we can have others here and engage them in fellowship. Christians who really understand the emotional joy of good food, enjoy making food for others, spreading a table for others. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. If we're not to neglect strangers, we need to be proactive when it comes to prisoners and other believers who are mistreated. Jesus gives a slightly longer list of people to care for. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The writer of Hebrews makes a strong argument for empathy, for feeling what another person is feeling. Regarding prisoners, he says, remember them 
as though in prison with them. Put yourself there as though you were in prison with that person. Regarding those who are mistreated, remember that you also are in the body, that your body gets fatigued and your body suffers pain. And when you're mistreated physically, you know what that feels like, even if it's just verbal abuse, how it affects your body, your, your insides. And in saying, as though in prison with them, or because you're in the body also, he's saying, identify with them. You can do this because you're made of the same stuff. And you can imagine what it must be like to be in, imprisoned in this cell. Um, imagine being in their situation. This is powerful because it's the way that Jesus gained empathy with us. He took on a body. We read earlier in Hebrews, since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all ways was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in becoming a body, in the incarnation of Jesus, when he became flesh and blood, he then experienced the vulnerability of the human body. And that's how he can relate to us. And now we're told to relate to others that way by knowing what it's like to be in a body and to suffer whatever the, body's, the body suffers. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, the very last sentences that he wrote were these. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I imagine Paul taking the scroll and there at the end, the, the person who he's dictated to hands him the scroll and Paul signs with his own name. And then he authenticates it. I wrote this with my own hand. And as he does, he feels the weight of the shackle on his wrist. He hears the chain clanking as he writes. And so he adds, remember my chains. Remember where I am right now and, and what I'm suffering. And that remembering, of course, is going to cause people to pray for him and feel that empathy that will make them good intercessors. Because the good intercessor is one who's filled with empathy, one who prays for others as if praying for themselves. Okay, verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We go from relating to those in trouble to relating to spouses, our own spouses, and to the spouses of others also, as it turns out. This also has to do with being in the body, our physical selves. 
Paul's lessons on marriage and sexuality also have to do with the body. And it's interesting there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6, and 7 that Paul relates um, immorality and covetousness, um, that is, greed. Okay, back to Hebrews. So I'm going to go back and forth a little bit here. Uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us a very high view of marriage. Again, Luke Johnson said, In Israel, marriage was a natural symbol for covenantal loyalty between God and humans, quite literally as well, since obedience to the commandment not to serve other gods and not to commit adultery are both fundamental expressions of the covenant. The marriage is also bonded by a covenant, and Malachi refers to the covenant of marriage. And so, marriage is honorable, and it is to be honored. And the marriage bed is not to be defiled. The marriage bed is that place of togetherness, that place of intimacy. If your spouse is visiting, off visiting relatives or out of town on business, you notice that empty space in bed. Undefiled is no one else gets into that bed other than the husband or the wife. And undefiled is, a, is an interesting term because in, in the, the uh, bipolarity of holiness and defiled, it would suggest that the only place where sex is holy is in the, the marriage bed with each other. When, he, when the writer speaks of the sexually immoral, he uses the Greek word parnos, a root of our word pornography, and it refers to sex outside of marriage. So marriage is the, you know, the place of intimacy. And Paul says something wonderful in 1 Corinthians 7, but it's only wonderful where the husband and wife work out all of their differences, all of their ideas about sex, and, and work out their relationship so that they both feel emotionally and physically safe with each other. But Paul says, look, the wife's body is not her own, it belongs to the husband. And the husband's body is not his own, it belongs to the wife. And he's talking specifically of sex in marriage that there is this, this giving of one's self to one's partner. And it's not that the one dominates the other. Both are doing the same thing. Both are presenting their body um, you know, transparent and open and receptive to the other. And this is what the writer of Hebrews sees as the ideal, as the holy coming together. 
And in all of our relationships, this is the only one where the two flesh become one. We may be one with Christ, but that's in spirit. We may be one with the Christian church, that's in spirit. But it's only in marital sex that the two become one. And that's to be honored and not defiled. In verses uh, 5 through 6, we're now relating to God. may not sound like that at first, but keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can those creditors do to me? What can those bullies do to me? Again, we have the word for love, philia. And this time, it's love for money. And it turns out that money is a major competitor with the Lord our God. Money can even be symbolized as a form of idolatry and greed as a devotion to the idolatry of money. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, You cannot serve God and money. The Christian's source of contentment is not detachment. That's how some Eastern religions seek contentment, is detach from all desire. Because desire produces suffering. And you want to live in equanimity and tranquility. So detach from all worldly things. Detach from desire for anything. But Christian contentment is in attaching ourselves to the God who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And, and trusting what he's told us, that he will watch over us, that he will work out his will in our lives. So what does God say? He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And there's our contentment in that. God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And we say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can others do to me? Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This probably speaks of leaders in the past who have died. Because he, he can speak in the past tense, they spoke to you when they were alive. And we can see the outcome of their way of life. That is, they've, they've run the course and they're gone from us now. And we're told to remember them, to consider their lives, and to imitate their faith. Remember, consider, imitate. Those are going to be on the quiz. They spoke to you the word of God. We're blessed to have leaders like these. This isn't just about them preaching and teaching. 
when we went to them for counsel, the counsel they gave us came from the scripture. Sometimes they said, open your Bible and open it to this passage. And they had us read it. And as we read it, you started to get the feeling that the answer was there. And then as they explained it, we realized, yes, God has spoken to my situation. Here it is. What a blessing to have spiritual directors. What a blessing to have counselors, pastoral counselors. I mean, who are really pastoral, really there as, as Jesus would be the great shepherd of the flock. To have leaders who can teach us the things of God and, and guide us along the way, give us training and so on, it's a blessing. I've been blessed by Christian leaders who are no longer here. In fact, I began earlier with a quote by Bruce Larson, who has passed away. And yet I still benefit from what I've received from him. The Christian leader eventually disappears. And it's not important that we rem remember his or her name, but that they've instilled within us a love for the name of Jesus, a trust in Jesus. I think that the, the pastor is to be like an umpire or a referee, that they, they call fouls and, and outs and whatever, but at the end of the game, you don't remember the referee or the umpire. They disappear. They're not important. It's who is on the field playing the game that, that counts, and that's where we are. And our pastors and leaders, I, I can't, well, I can't imagine, I guess it's okay, having a ministry that's named after me. <laughs> oh, good grief. Um, I'm going to disappear. But it's important that leaders, while they're here, prepare us for their absence. Peter wrote to those who were his followers and said, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Christ has made clear to me. Wow, lovely. Um, he says, I'm trying to take care of you before I'm taken away. Verse 8, and this is where we've been, uh, this is the ladder we've been climbing in. Here's, we're at the top of the ladder now. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now we are relating to Jesus. So we have all these relationships and here we come to this, this intimate point of human person to human person. One filled with the Spirit of God who by his breath and touch fills us with the Spirit of God. This is the community's leader whose name we remember, and he remains forever, as we read earlier in the book of Hebrews. Jesus will always be here. He'll never go away. He's not an umpire, um, except in the sense of being a mediator between us and God. But he's not one who disappears after the game. He, there's no end to his pastoral care for us. In... Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12, we read that earth 
and heaven will perish, but he is the same. And that's the word that's used here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Richard Bauckham said, he remains himself eternally and can therefore be trusted in the present and the future just as he was in the past. God says of himself, I am. And he explains to us, I am Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. God says, I am, and we can't comprehend his eternal nature. So he puts it in a time frame that we can understand, language we can understand. I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. If what we have here in the first eight verses of chapter 13 is a checklist, I go through this checklist, which ones do I need to improve on in my own life? And this isn't quite fair, is it? Uh, I think I'd be checking each box on this one. But so that we don't have to memorize this checklist or keep coming back to it, that won't hurt if we do that. Um, there's a short version. And the short version goes like this. Just taking from what's here before us. Love others in the way we want to be loved. Love God by trusting him and thereby being content with his guardianship of our lives, being content with him. And love Jesus Christ by staying close to him today, tomorrow, forever. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for tuning in. May the Lord God bless you this week. May he hear your prayers and answer them. May you sense his presence when you need him most. And may that sense of God's nearness grow in all of our lives. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.